We are live. This is the Connor Chetnik podcast, and today I'm super stoked to be joined by JP Barrick, who is the CEO of Mining Store. JP, thanks for taking some time to come on the show. Thanks again, man. I'm excited to be here. Excited to talk about mining. <laughs> Heck yeah. So uh, to get it started, I'd love for you to just give a little introduction about yourself. I know you've been in the Bitcoin space for uh, 10 plus years, but yeah, I'd just love to have the audience hear a little introduction about yourself. So I got into Bitcoin in 2013 when I realized that it was the future of money, separating money from state. And I was like, how is this stuff made? Wanted to jump into mining and started mining Ethereum back in the day and then started mining store in 2016. Since then, we've helped companies and individuals get in to Bitcoin mining and get exposure through a multiple range of products. So excited to talk about it today and talk about energy and Bitcoin and all the fun stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so out of curiosity, when you first got into it, you know, I can say from my personal experience, it definitely was just kind of the number go up. It wasn't until I think I got a stimulus check in 2020 that something clicked and I was like, all right, I need to learn a little bit more about how this separates money from state. Uh, but I'd love to hear in those early days, um, were you a computer guy, finance guy? How did you, you know, how did you look at this technology? Was it just the number go up or was it something more for you? It was definitely something more for me. I was only in high school. So I was a freshman in high school and I was like, what is Bitcoin? Like, why is it important? It just hit $70 a coin. And I was like, this is ridiculous. This stuff is like, what, what is it, right? Like, read a TechCrunch article, read about Mt. Gox, make an account, start buying money, you know, start buying Bitcoins from Mt. Gox, start figuring out what is GPU mining. And from there, I just got addicted to it. I was just like, this is the future of money. And once I realized that there was only so many of them, that each one of them came from using energy and from using GPUs or ASICs to make them, I, I became addicted to it and wanted to make everyone else aware of Bitcoin. So I started telling all my family and friends like, hey, Bitcoin, have you checked it out? And I'm like 14 years old. They're like, what? What is Bitcoin? And trying to explain like, well, it solves this really complicated problem called the Byzantine generals problem. Have you heard of it? And they're like, no. And so just like walking people through that over the years. And now I've toned it back a little bit. I know how to kind of walk someone into their Bitcoin journey, depending on where they are and their uh, understanding of finance. But that's how I got into it. It was just pure excitement and obviously the opportunity to own part of the future when Bitcoin could be worth a million dollars was enough to keep me around. Yeah, that, that's a great answer. I know uh, when you first get in the space, you're just trying to tell all your friends and family you're so excited. It's like uh, it's almost like an ego death. And then you just want to tell everyone and enlighten them. And, um, you, you know, you mentioned now it's like, all right, let me tone it back. Let me meet people where they are, try and figure that out. Uh, so I'd love to hear from when you first got into now how you how that journey of trying to orange pill people has you know, changed. And I'm sure hindsight's 2020, but I'm sure a lot of your family listened to you when you were 14 and Bitcoin was uh, around 70 bucks. Some of them did and some of them didn't. I have a big family and like 40 plus people, cousins in my family. So when it comes to Bitcoin orange pilling then, I would focus a lot more on like the fact that it was decentralizing trust. It solved this big problem called the Byzantine General's problem. The fact that, um, you know, it was money separated from the state. That's where I was attacking and kind of like sharing the knowledge with people. Today, I'm more of like, hey, you know, inflation's really rampant. How are you going to protect yourself? You know, taxation or inflation is taxation without representation. And what do you have for a say when it comes to how many dollars we spend on, you know, the war in Ukraine or whatever it happens to be a stimulus package and giving people the understanding that like Bitcoin is a way for them to protect themselves from this inflation. And then always bringing it back now to energy and understanding as a miner how important energy is to the Bitcoin system and how important proof of work is to showing that this is actual work that's being done and this is value and this is the baseline uh, kind of agreement we've all made with Bitcoin mining that energy is going to secure the Bitcoin blockchain and each Bitcoin is going to represent a total amount of energy that was used during that 10 minute time to create it. And what does that mean for the traditional financial system to the real estate system we live in today with you know, and everything's made out of energy with concrete and the buildings. And so it's like, okay, this is a digital object that I can transfer across the world, but it has a physical component to it. And kind of getting people to bridge the gap is something I've specialized in and been able to educate millions of people through TikTok and social media and through different appearances about this journey of why Bitcoin mining is so important and why Bitcoin is so different than crypto today. Yeah, I think that point that, you know, Bitcoin is energy tied money. And yes, we all and most of us look at the fiat price constantly and judge it by the fiat price. But the real innovation is the fact that Satoshi tied Bitcoin to energy and that, you know, one Bitcoin, we say this a little bit tongue in cheek, but one Bitcoin <laughs> will always equal one Bitcoin. 
Um, so I'm curious, when you first got in, what attracted you to mining? What made you actually want to mine Bitcoin rather than buy it? I guess at the time you, you, you mentioned Mt. Gox, which is obviously one of the first exchanges, and then it got hacked. And uh, um, yeah, what, what compelled you to just go full force into mining rather than just try and buy some on Mt. Gox and just you know try and stack stats without mining? Yeah, so I, I did get into you know Mt. Gox and did purchase through that way. But I found mining was this unique opportunity for me with some computer skills, something that was accessible that I could do at my house. You know, I bought a few GPUs, started mining Litecoin, Ethereum. I pre-ordered Butterfly Lab machines, which they always, their joke was, oh, it's going to be two more weeks till we deliver. And they never delivered for almost two years. And Bitmain, you know, kicked them out of the water on the chip efficiency. We started at 120 nanometers uh, per chip when it came to calculations when Butterfly Labs came out. Now today in the mining industry, we're at five and seven nanometers. And so the exponential progress on how efficient these machines have become is insane. For me, I focused on, okay, I was selling computers as an entrepreneur. I was running a robotics camp in high school. So I was in the weed on the technical side. I understood computers. They just kind of came easy to me. It's something I got to deal with my hands. And it was like taking my Bitcoin journey to another level. Like I understood Bitcoin on like the Byzantine general problem level and on, okay, it's sound money and this is really cool and I can send sats and I can gamble on, you know, Satoshi Dice, stuff like that back in the day. And then I learned, wait, how is this created? And that just opened a rabbit hole of not only computers, computers and compute, but also energy and energy markets and local politics and building real estate and running a team. And since then, it kind of just engulfed me and I've really enjoyed building and running data centers. Um, and that's what we do today. That's awesome. I'm curious to hear from someone who has actually been hands on with the mining, what it was like when uh, you weren't able to mine on a GPU anymore and you had to use an A6. And for those in the audience who might not be as technically savvy, a GPU is a graphical processing unit and an A6 is an application specific integrated circuit. And A6 are literally computers. You can think of them as computers made to do one thing specifically, and in this case, hash to mine the Bitcoin. Um, so I'd love to hear kind of like how you handled pivoting the business or if you guys did, or did you just mine Ethereum at that point because it was GPUs or what, what was that? Yeah, so I, I was so small and just starting up the company. You know, I was 2013, right around 13, 14 years old, and I had two GPU miners in my, my parents' basement. So I was like, okay, what, what is this? You know, and I bought the ASICs. I was waiting for them to come. So I started mining Litecoin and Doge and selling them because at that point, the transition was like, are we going to go to FPGAs or are we going to go to ASICs? And that's the transition that I joined Bitcoin in, right when it was transitioning. What's an FPGA, real quick? So that's Field Programmable Graphic Accelerators. They're basically ASICs, but they have a more programmability like GPUs. So they sit right in between the two of them when it comes to computing and, and, and computation. And so I was joining in this phase where people were building on both uh, systems of infrastructure. They both built out on it in ASIC 1 because it's uh, just more dedicated to Bitcoin mining and can't do anything else. And that's where Bitmain really started getting their feed. And so I started getting into GPU mining in a large scale with 300 GPUs, and that was when Ethereum came out. So when Ethereum was coming out, we wanted it was going to be proof of work. We said, okay, let's go to Newegg, buy 300 GPUs, me and a co-founder, bought, bought all the GPUs up, got investment from family and friends, You know, got my grandma to write a check for 20 grand, be like, grandma, buy the Bitcoin miners, here we go. And we were mining go, 500, exactly. We were mining 500 Ethereum a day at the back in the beginning and, you know, selling it for a few dollars, $7, $8 a coin to pay bills, to pay electricity. And that was the journey. And from there, mining store became a Shopify store of selling the excess inventory we had or just managing and moving machines. And then we ended up going that to where we are today with running facilities across uh, the United States and Iowa. That's awesome. So I want to get into mining store, but before we do, uh, I'm curious. Personally, I consider myself a Bitcoiner. I'm not the biggest fan of Ethereum, but I also believe that people should be allowed to do whatever they want. Um, and I'm curious from someone who understands mining so intimately, what are your thoughts on Ethereum switching from proof of work to proof of stake? Because from my perspective, it just seems like they kind of severed that whole tie from reality. And the thing that makes it valuable, the fact that it's tethered to energy when they switched away from that just kind of made it Fiat 2.0, if you will. No, you're exactly right. They went from a money based on energy, which is Bitcoin and any proof of work system, to a money based on social consensus, which is, you know, the dollar and similar stuff we have. And then we have a money based on real world assets, which is commodities, really. And so those are the three types of money that we have in society. And so by changing to social based money, now it's more about, okay, control is 
uh, and consensus, which is important. That's why we have proof of anything is to gain consensus. That's given through how many tokens you hold, how many coins you hold in the system. Now, that's very similar to the dollar, like interest rates. And the best way to explain it is, you know, you get interest on your money in a bank account. That's similar to proof of stake versus actually having to do work for proof of work. I personally think it was a, you know, a, a negative decision to the community. And I'm amazed that it finally happened because when I started mining Bitcoin, Ethereum in 2016, that's when they started talking about something called a difficulty bomb and the ability to go to this proof of stake system. And it took them, you know, from 2016, 2017 till now, six years almost, <laughs> like just shows you how much Ethereum is like, let's sell the vision and let's promise that everything in the future. But in the reality is we're as lost as everyone else when it comes to developing these decentralized consensus based blockchains and Bitcoin is, you know, steady not going to change and that's what makes it so special yeah 100 percent. and the fact too that you don't necessarily have to be a miner you can run a full node validate the network validate that the bitcoin you own's there run get tx outside info on your console and see exactly how many bitcoin are in existence and uh i, I obviously i, I mean i'm not just yeah and ethereum you don't even you don't even know how many like ethereum are actually out there you bring up a great point <laughs> yeah. it's like ugh. <laughs> <laughs> call it ultrasound money is uh I, I wouldn't call it ultrasound money, but teach their own. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where marketing plays. So, you know, in all these coins, and I've seen tons of coins go across. I saw, you know, Ethereum IPO or ICO. And the one thing at the end of the day is that Bitcoin has no CEO. It's a you know decentralized protocol. And that's what makes it so unique out of compared to any other asset or any other cryptocurrency you could in, you interact with on a day to day and why people really need to pay attention to. OK, I know it's old. I know it's not as hip now, but why is it still here and why is it so valuable and why are people like BlackRock, you know, launching ETFs to buy it? Yeah, so I'm actually really happy you brought that up because uh, I recently read The Block Size Wars and it pretty much just emphasized everything you just said there about how there's no one in charge of this. In The Block Size War, you learn about how these big, massive companies in the space basically colluded to say this is what Bitcoin's going to be. And what they wanted, the big blocks, did not come to fruition because the core developers and the node runners said, no, I'm not doing that. Um, so Bitcoin is the Bitcoin we know today, and it didn't follow, you know, there's Bitcoin Cash now that split off. And most of these uh, big companies just kind of came back with their tail between their legs, like, all right, I guess we're going back to Bitcoin since B BCH obviously lost, Bitcoin Cash lost. Um, but I, I want to get your thoughts on the BlackRock thing, because I saw someone who pointed out, uh, I think it was Anil on Twitter, who mentioned that in the filing, it said that BlackRock has like, I could be botching this, so probably for audience, go look it up yourself. But that BlackRock has sole discretion. If Bitcoin forks, they can pick the chain, and they might not pick the chain that has the most economic value. Um, you know, that that's the most valuable. That's the longest proof of work chain. So I'm curious if you think. Uh, you know, I know it's exciting for the number to grow up because you know now institutions can get in. A lot of institutions can't hold their own private keys. But I'm curious if you think that's an attack vector. If there's anything else that worries you about uh, BlackRock getting into the space and obviously filing for the ETF trust, whatever whatever it is they file for. It's definitely an attack vector. I would say that it's a little scary when everyone else in the system that's done this is going one way, which would be, hey, if we have a chain split, you're going to get both tokens, you know, and they're both going to be part of the ETF. Like that could make logical sense. Uh, it's it's really it's concerning, you know, because what is this ETF? Well, it's a trust that's traded every day. It's a fund that's traded every day that owns a key, a private key. That's held by multi-sig, you know, a bunch of other people to make it secure. So that private key is going to get new crypto, new bitcoins, whatever they are, uh, every time we have a new chain. And there's a lot of Bitcoin chains that come out. You know, there's there's like the one true Bitcoin, like there's the one true Mickey Mouse. You know, we only talk about one of them, and there's only one of them at a time. But the reality is, is there's a lot of them. The the reality. Oh, you can hear me now. We're back. Yep, I, I can hear you. Perfect. Cut off there. Last, last thing I heard is there's one true chain, like there's one true Mickey Mouse. So, and the the reality is, is like you know, Bitcoin is here for consensus, and so the people are the ones who decide consensus. Now, whenever one single entity like BlackRock gets more than 20, 30 percent of Bitcoin's in existence, we should be a lot more concerned than if a mining pool gets 30 or 50 percent, because a mining pool is hash rate that's fungible, that's changing, that's flexible, that can move easily, where Bitcoin in a trust or a fund is uh, going to be very hard to get out of that and, and, and you know, to move it. And so I think it's important that the community understands that, yes, this is number go up, but yes, this does 
open up the possibilities of cent really large centralized holders of this asset class. And, and those could you know, act in a way that the government needs them to act in a sense of urgency. So it, it's, a, it's a win, but it's also, you know, I hope there's more than just BlackRock ETF in the future. Yeah, you made such a good point there too. I, I remember uh, when I first got into Bitcoin in 2017, I got a Coinbase account. And then shortly after that, uh, you know, Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash split. And then I just got to Bitcoin Cash. And I was so confused at the time because I really didn't do any research. You know, I, I remember watching a documentary being like, why do I need Coinbase to buy Bitcoin? Whatever, I'm just going to go and do it. Um, wish I had done more research at the time. But I remember that split happened and I basically had both tokens. And to your point, if BlackRock basically says, all right, well, now you get this whatever fork of Bitcoin, we're keeping the other one. Well, then, depending on if they get a massive amount of Bitcoin, they can start market selling those Bitcoin to try and prop up the price of their forked off Bitcoin. And uh, that's just a risk I, I hadn't thought of. On top of everyone being pissed off, it's like, why did you get the less proof of work chain? Why did you get this soft proof of stake fork or whatever fork they try and <laughs> go with? That's, that's something, uh, you know, buyer beware. <laughs> Exactly. Know what you're owning. You know, one true Bitcoin is one true Bitcoin in a hardware wallet or a wallet that you own and know the private keys to and no one else does, in my opinion. You know, everything else is semi-custodial and yep. ETF is custodial. <laughs> Absolutely. Not your keys, not your cheese. So talk to me about uh, my mining store and how you guys came to be, you know, how the company started out and then, uh, you know, what's kind of been that progression up until today. Sure. So it's been, you know, it's been a journey. It's been my entrepreneurial baby from after a few companies at the robotics camp, I was selling servers, selling Legos, you know, in high school, mowing lawns, doing, you know, the normal, now I would call like the TikTok hustle of like <laughs> online of all these guys, like how do I made a thousand dollars this week? You know, all that type of type of gigs. And then I got into the, the, the business of selling graphics cards and selling ASICs and saying like, okay, I'm seeing the market move in one direction. I'm understanding that these ASICs, these GPUs, are now no longer priced in like how much a gamer will pay for them, but are priced in how much they're going to extract in digital currency. And so we started working on top of that idea of really the core philosophy was to decentralize and make mining accessible to everyone. So I launched this company called Steam Pool, and it allows you to get Steam gift cards through GPU mining. It's super easy setup. I was going to school for computer science at NC State, programming that in you know at night and 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 launching different software updates. And then I realized, sitting in my um, in my boxers one day, shit, I can make fifty grand or hundred grand selling these GPUs as a transaction comes across my desk. You know, a cold email in, hey, I want to buy three hundred graphics cards. Oh, I know where I can get those. Yeah, let me just margin this deal. And then I was like, wait, this is a business. So I did the worst thing that you should do and hire all your friends to sell graphics cards. And we all moved into like a warehouse and I hired them all. We were, you know, flipping the GPUs in the bull market. And then when the bear market came, I was like, well, I got this big warehouse. I got all these. I bought 900 GPU server cases from China. They show up like tons of them. I have no idea how I'm going to sell them all. But, you know, you're just trusting the process. And one day a buyer calls up and they say, I want 750 of those cases. And you saw those cases available? I'm like, yeah, I do. How many do you want? And so we go and we build them all for them. And then from there, I moved from North Carolina to down to Houston, Texas, and started trying to make energy connections and doing projects for companies that build solar farms that needed tax credits. Tried going and like, you know, building out a facility in Iowa in 2019, selling off some old GPU facilities, helping uh, Jason Williams from PRTI mine Bitcoin off of tires. Yep. So I had this journey of just like uh, almost odd mining jobs. Like, oh, you got energy? I'll mine for you. Like, I'll help you out. Like, oh, you got money and energy? And so from there, I finally started building a service and a team and uh, a marketing channel and a brand. And that's where Mining Store came to be today, where we have uh, 15 megawatts of operations in Iowa. We're growing at about 5 to 10 megawatts every quarter. And we're just, you know, scaling of how do we get people into Bitcoin mining? How do we create programs that are actually going to be winners, wins for the consumers, wins for us? So because I've been in the industry so long, I've been screwed over on contracts. I've been sued for not paying energy bills. And it's just like, what? Because, you know, as a broker and a young guy, you don't understand the amount of liability you might be taking to make that five, ten thousand dollars and the reality is it's like you're looking back at some of these, you know, earlier deals for ASIC miners, especially S9s, I'm like, oh yeah, I've got the you know the guy running them here, I'm gonna pass them off to the guy here, I'm gonna take an arbitrage, what happens if the guy stops paying? Oh, now I have to still pay these power bills and they're no longer making enough Bitcoin. 
And so you learn about all of those things. And that's kind of the, the value and the, the opportunity we've created at Mining Store, which is, okay, how do we contractually get people to mine Bitcoin where they're going to be able to last through the bear cycles, through the bull cycles? And so we've, we have this new program, a few programs we've launched. One is managed mining. And that's exactly, you know, it's not hosting, but it's a leaseback model. So we're managing their servers. They're leasing them. We're leasing them from them. They're leasing them to us. And we're running them for them. We're paying them out. We're doing all the maintenance, the parts, giving them electricity plus a cost basis. We're taking a performance fee and collecting mining in there. But the thing is about them is they cannot default on their contract. So it's not like a hosting bill. It's like, oh, I can't pay my 10 cents electricity. I can't pay for it. I can't, don't have the machines anymore. I, they're not mine. We're like, okay, how do we eliminate that? And that has really allowed us to focus on the bottom line, which is how do we get Bitcoin for us and our clients and run a better operation than you know, have people make a lot of money in the bull market, but then lose it all in the bear market and be unhappy and, and be sad that their Bitcoin money investment didn't work out for them. Yeah, I think that it's very hard to appreciate unless, as you just mentioned, you actually work in the industry, how volatile it can be with Bitcoin mining. I was at the MIT Bitcoin Expo uh, up here in Boston a, a month or so ago, and there was a guy who's with a publicly listed mining company just talking about how hard it is to calculate, uh, you know, what your revenue is going to be, what your expenses are, et cetera, because, you know, like take, for example, when China banned Bitcoin, if you were a miner, that was great for you because all the hash rate like that fell off a cliff overnight. So, you know, you're, you're able to be more profitable because less people are mining means you're more likely to find a block, increase in profits. Um, so I'm curious as, you know, it's been over the years and you've become more accustomed to dealing with this incredible volatility and difficulty. What are some of the lessons you've learned? Is it just basically looking for the cheapest form of energy, trying like I know, uh, you know, the government has all these subsidies for wind and solar, just trying to find those contracts because it's, you know, as cheap as possible of energy. And I guess uh, a follow on question with that is what are some of the things that concern you? Because it's exciting to see El Salvador starting to mine Bitcoin. But, you know, think of a nation state versus a private actor. Well, I don't want to say the energy is free, but like a nation state is kind of like monopolized violence. So they can say, all right, well, we're going to use this part of the grid to mine Bitcoin. And I mean, they don't really have to pay for it because they own the, you know, the energy facility. Yeah, you, you know, you bring up a great point. And I think where an operator can focus most of their time on and where the, a lot of value is created is on the energy price. You know, four cent energy versus two cent energy is a huge uh, increase to the bottom line. So that's where as an operator you want to focus on. And that's where you're going to get an edge for us. You know, over the years, I've used grid energy. I've looked for buying a wind farm and calculating out what the energy costs are there. We've looked at nat gas, you know, flare gas. We've even talked to people about volcano mining and using actually coconuts and coconut seed oil to mine through a generator. So people will try to do, you know, create energy and, and do it for the lowest cost possible. And that'll always be an opportunity. But the nice thing about mining is that there's always an arbitrage between the price that the Bitcoin network's paying and the price of the energy. And that arbitrage is changing across the US and even in the Midwest where we're at. So we're focused on areas where a lot of energy is being produced by wind and solar because of these tax credits that you mentioned, but the population densities are not growing. We're also focused on areas where substations are readily available and we're able to find labor that is you know, cheap and deferred property taxes. Iowa has no property taxes on data centers. So we focus on areas that Really, the power markets provide us an alternative revenue source. And you'll notice the most of the Bitcoin miners in Texas, they're part of something called demand response. Now, that's not only in Texas, that's across anywhere in the United States and a lot of energy markets. Basically, energy isn't something we're just buying right now. You know, when you plug in your phone, you're not really thinking about the energy that it's buying for this moment. But imagine if you could buy an iPhone's worth of energy from someone and not have to pay for energy to charge the iPhone ever again. So if you're looking at energy as like a block that you can buy in the future in time, Bitcoin miners basically buy up a blocks of cheap energy every single day. And we sell that Bitcoin mining, we sell that energy to the, to the Bitcoin mining network. But the grid during the hot summer day, like today, for example, it's like 90, 80 degrees in Iowa. And we're shut off on two of our facilities because we get demand response events that say, hey, the power price is too expensive now. You're not willing to pay $80 a megawatt hour, so you're going to turn off. And then you're going to sell that opportunity, the right to buy that power back because we're buying it every day. We're a firm demand or firm load versus someone who's flexible. We're like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to do, I don't know if I want to buy the power today or I don't know if I need to buy the power today. So understanding the energy markets, you're like, whoa, if I'm a data center, I don't need to have any marketing. I don't need to have any clients. All I'm trying to do is arbitrage this energy play. That's what Bitcoin mining has become for a lot of 
groups. And it's where we see the nuclear guys and the big wind guys starting to come into the space because now they can play with funny amortization tables and profit and loss. And like, okay, if I can sell my energy up only by 5% more, but put it through Bitcoin mining, what does that do to my bottom line? And that's why I'm super excited about the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the books I've been reading recently is Alex Epstein's Fossil Future. And it's definitely shifted my perspective on uh, are fossil fuels a, a net negative or a net positive for the world. Um, but one of his biggest critiques of wind and solar is the fact that it's intermittent energy. So if you have a grid that, you know, has to constantly have energy, well, wind and solar can be pretty hit or miss depending on if it's a windy day, if it's a sunny day, et cetera. And, uh, you know, demand response. And I think Bitcoin mining can play such a crucial role. Uh, you know, I, I think nuclear is also going to play, especially if, like, you know, you really think CO2 is as bad as they say it is. And, you know, then nuclear should play a massive role because it's the most energy efficient, constant source of energy humanity's discovered so far. Um, anyways, I, I'd love to hear you just kind of expand on how this demand response can essentially create cheaper energy for everyone in the world. And I think it's so important to realize that like energy is the base layer of civilization and the cheaper we can get energy, the cheaper every other good and service on the planet will become. You're exactly right. You know, when natural gas prices went crazy the past two years in price and increased by 500%, that affected inflation, that affected every item of our supply chain because energy, natural gas, coal, these fossil fuels are the building blocks of our life. You know, just the laptops we're on, the, the headphones we have on, <laughs> yep. every single thing we're touching, the shirt I'm wearing. So when it comes to this marketplace of energy, there's been tons of stimulus, tons of incentives, tax incentives, and the ordinary consumer has not had the ability to capture that advantages, to capture those advantages. With, with a, and if you're in the Midwest and you're using energy and you're part of a cooperative, your energy bill might be a little bit lower, but you're not going to see any value created from this. So by being able to use cheap energy in these areas because the markets are very volatile now, because of the intermittency that you mentioned, solar and wind, the markets go from negative twenty dollars to twenty five, fifty, forty, you know, hundred dollars per megawatt hour of energy, and so that volatility creates opportunity for people like us who are saying, okay, we're going to be a consistent buyer in this market of volatility. You can rely on us, which means we're going to get those negative priced hours, and we're going to let you sell those higher priced hours to your consumer base. And so, what we do is we add something called base load to the electric grid, and base load is the amount of load that is always on, but then there's another part of base load, which is flexible base load, which is like the best load that a utility can have because they can say, hey, turn off. You know, it's, it's four o'clock. We need to get our consumers back on. Well, you've already locked your power in for the week or for the day because I already locked that price in the day before, but then the market started going crazy. And so that's where you have an opportunity to work with producers and consumers of energy to meet the demands of a community to lower the cost of energy for everyone. Now you brought up nuclear energy. I love nuclear. The problem with nuclear energy, which is crazy because it all comes down to the more you look at it, it's like, is this for the people? Is this for the community? Is this for the businesses? Is this for the lawyers? Is this for the tax accountants? Is this for the politicians? And when you look at nuclear, there's one word that is preventing it from growing and from becoming such a sustainable source that we all could use, and that's allowable. So nuclear energy, when they build these facilities, they define allowable differently per government agency. So when you're building a facility, you have to have an amount of allowable radiation exposure. Now, if I'm building a nuclear, sh or a nuclear you know, ship, uh, an aircraft carrier, a submarine, that's gonna have a different definition of allowable than if I'm building a you know, nuclear facility in South Carolina. And because the governmental bodies can make it much harder to always align to that version of allowable and change that version of allowable on what is necessary and what is compliant, you have massive costs to make energy. So they'll always keep nuclear just right above, you know, solar and wind, always a little bit harder than natural gas to get to and make it harder and harder to build them. And so I think that in the future, nuclear, you know, we've been able to design this now with uh, Bill Gates and some great other researchers and, you know, money coming at this to solve this problem where now nuclear is one pellet and then the pellet collapses in on itself and there's no refueling. It lasts for 10 years and you drop it off in a storage container. That's the future of energy, in my opinion. I think solar and wind, they're great sources to get cheap energy for mining, but they're not sustainable when it comes to, is this moving civilization forward? Yeah, absolutely. So with that pellet, is it like a smaller nuclear reactor? Um, 
Yeah, it's a few megawatts. And the way it works is, you know, you have one pellet inside and that's going to last for up to, I think, 10 years. And then on the outside of that pellet is a bunch of other pellets that are the only way for the pellet to get out is if it encloses in on itself. So it can't like slip out anywhere because, you know, we built nuclear reactors when we didn't have computers. This is by hand. Now we give, we give this to computers. We're like, hey, solve this problem. We're like, okay, what happens if we have this reactor built with these, you know, um, these molecules around the, the uranium and so then they you know they're pushing against each other and then if something happens the only way for the uranium to get out is to go through a molecule that dissolves it or that would hold it and collapse in on itself so you like we engineered the problem of like nuclear destruction away and we're like okay now how do we make it modular and now what's what are, what's the use case we really need you know it's remote 10 megawatt 20 megawatt power plants it's not gigawatt plants to power la you know we all want close power plants to us. We don't want transmission lines. No one wants that. So I think modular energy microgrids, we're seeing a big, big resurgence in that. And we're only going to uh, see that expand as the grid becomes a little bit more crazy with this infrastructure act. Yeah, a hundred percent. I hope we see more nuclear. Um, I, I'm probably going to get these numbers wrong, but I, I think in that book, Fossil Future, Epstein was saying how it's like been like 30 years since we've commissioned a new nuclear plant or something like that. And most of these plants were made, uh, you know, a long time ago. So some of these engineers are dying off and there just hasn't been a need for <clears throat> more nuclear engineers to come in. I think there's a lot of people who are scared because of uh, Chernobyl or uh, I forget the place in Japan that also had a nuclear meltdown. But from what I've also read is like they had the worst standard practices. Like you mentioned, we now have computers, we have much better technology. And also I think obviously like let's not put a nuclear reactor in a place that's very prone to hurricanes or a place that's very prone to uh, earthquakes. Like we can put them in locations where we know it's going to be safer. And then with these smaller pellets, it just seems like, uh, you know, it, it could do so much. Like I, well, I just, I and that's the nice thing about engineering is you can make it so that it can get hit by a hurricane. It can get hit by a tsunami. And it's the only way for it to go is to go inside of itself. Like we can solve these problems and then you can deploy modular nuclear across the world but it comes down to regulatory issues and that's really where sadly the line is drawn is it's are we do we care are we are we only focused on rise rising the energy amount of energy available to civilization or is there other means of like keeping people you know in control and keeping the the formalities that we have and the powers that be that run the electric grid which then provide you know, really production ability for this whole area. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of messy fingers in there when you get in the infrastructure world. It's not as easy as software, just like disrupt, 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 which is what we're used to. Yep, a hundred percent. It cracks me up too to think that nuclear is literally just heating up water and then getting the the steam from that water to spin a wind turbine, and that's how the electricity is. I mean, it's like so simple on the face of it. It's obviously complex technology. It's a lot of building to make a nuclear reactor, but like. You know, it, it, it's pretty much just heating up water to generate electricity. That always cracked me up. That's um, basically how we make it all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned regulatory concerns and, uh, you know, these past week or so with uh, Coinbase and Binance being sued. I'm curious how you see things playing out. And uh, obviously, we both live in the United States, both love this country. Um, but it is discouraging to see Gary Gensler kind of change his tune on Bitcoin and to see these CBDCs and, and stuff like that. I think it's like, I mean, it's sort of the antithesis of Bitcoin having a CBDC. Um, so I'm curious how you see kind of hash rate and um, like just crypto in, in general playing out in, in the U.S. Yeah, I think that, you know, when I got into Bitcoin, there was always a concern about what is a security and it's never been defined well. And, you know, Gary Gensler's yeah. like, hey, we defined it. You know, you gotta, gotta jump through the hoops. But the, the reality is, is that, yeah, it's always been this um, thing where it's like, everything's a security, but Bitcoin is kind of like what the recent stance has been. And then it's like, oh, but this is security for these people. Or, oh, that's not a security for these people. And so the reality is, is I think it's just the powers that be understanding that, you know, they, as a regulatory body, are used to regulating a thousand applicants per se a year, 10,000 applicants a year, 10,000, you know, people doing security things. That's going to hit a peak and kind of slowly degrade, you know, once people get access to the internet. But the problem with blockchain is that it says we don't actually need your current system of trust effectively. We can have trust with cryptography and without the need for your existing systems. And that allows everyone to innovate. And that means we go from 10,000 projects a year 
to 10 million projects a year or a million projects a year. And the SEC as a regulatory body just can't keep up. And they can't, they never define good rules. And so what happens when you can't keep up and provide regulatory clarity? Well, capital is going to go elsewhere. And I think other countries are especially realizing with the de-dollarization that this is an opportunity to set the best foot forward to bring really smart people to our country, to live here, to be a nomad, to work remotely, to spend their money here, and to build on top of this new value layer of crypto, of Bitcoin specifically. And I, you know, when it comes to the SEC and debating the topic, I think it's sad that there hasn't been clarity, but it makes sense. They don't want to give clarity to something that's going to disrupt them. I mean, you make such a good point. It's such a catch-22 for the U.S. because on the one hand, like you said, capital is just going to go elsewhere. It's just going to move offshores, and that hurts the U.S. But at the same time, even though there is a big trend of de-dollarization recently, we still have the global reserve currency. We can still print money out of thin air and buy goods and services with it. So, of course, the regulators and the people in charge don't want to lose that privilege. Um, so they're like between a rock and a hard place. And even though I consider myself a Bitcoiner and I kind of think the other coins are, uh, say, more or less, I don't want to say useless, but more or less maybe fraudulent. Um, I, I think you're absolutely right. Like with technology nowadays, it would be so much easier if instead of having to use a third party like Wells Fargo or Fidelity or BlackRock or whoever to go and buy securities, if I could just, you know, say, hey, scan this QR code, send me that Apple stock, send me what, like that, it's so much more efficient. And I understand blockchain is pretty much an inefficient database. And uh, like, I think some, some people get a little excited with like the oh corporate blockchain, we'll just put it on the blockchain, not understanding what they're getting into. But like if you had like five, 10, however many big institutions running, you know, nodes, so you could do that with Apple stock and you could almost trade it like that. I think it just makes capital formation that much easier. It keeps the innovation here in the States. And then also like if you're a U.S. citizen, there really is no need for stable coins. But if you're in one of these less developed countries, like I see, could see a huge need for stable coins. Like I love Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin's great. And I, I think it'll be the next global reserve currency. But I also understand that, you know, if, if you're in one of these countries and, you know, you cannot stomach that volatility because you have bills to pay. Well, you know, stable coins are a huge demand for these other countries. Like inflation has been bad these past couple of years, but imagine that times 10 or times a hundred, like, you know, some of the people in Turkey, Venezuela, these other countries, like what they're dealing with is insane. So I'm with you. It's kind of sad to see the SEC just kind of drag their feet and wish wash and flip flop. And I'm really curious how it all plays out, because even if I'm not the biggest fan of these other cryptos, I think it's dumb to shoot ourselves in the foot as the United States and say, let's just have this capital go offshore, because that's exactly what's going to happen to your point. We're, I mean, we're privileged in the United States to be able to have the dollar and have it work for us and have it not degrade every day. So with that being said, you know, we're need to check our privilege and be like, what, what exactly does this mean for the entrepreneurs, for the future, you know, students of the United States, the future entrepreneurs that are going to be building on top of rails that need to connect to the existing financial system. And we saw with FTX, you know, you see with plenty of the other Asian exchanges, it's hard to find trusted authorities that aren't decentralized. Now, Tether has done a good job, per se, of like staying in the game of holding trillions or billions of dollars of cash for all of these people. But like that takes a lot of skill and there could be, you know, Tether is Tether. There could be this unknown thing happening with it. But it's like when you ever touch the physical world with the blockchain world, it it's where we get we get dicey, especially when it comes to security. Like you're securitizing dollars. That's why Bitcoin's so unique. It's like it's a security of energy. There's no nothing else behind it that it's tracking. One Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. And it's one of the only blockchains that really have that functionality. And I, I think that has that true value attached to it. And that's why it is, you know, the OG and always will be. Yeah. And if you look at Tether versus USDC, since the news of coin or the SEC coming after Coinbase, Coinbase and Binance, USDC has just been bleeding market cap and Tether's just been gaining a massive amount of market cap. Yeah. From you know everything I've seen online, it seems like the Tether guys are doing a great job and now they're buying Bitcoin and pumping everyone else who, who holds Bitcoin's bags. So like, that's exciting, but I just like, just baffles me. It's like, we are just moving all of this offshore, you know? And, uh, then again, I mean, I'm, I understand they're not in an easy position, but like, yeah, just get out of the way. Let the free market work. Stop trying to punish people for trying to innovate. And, uh, even if most of these cryptocurrencies are securities, we'll give them some guidelines because clearly it, it's, uh, 
it's just a di- it's a it's a different technology. And speaking of different technologies, uh, one thing I know that's been quite on anyone's mind who spends a lot of time on the internet is these AI tools. And I'd love to hear if these AI tools have had any impact on, you know, kind of your day-to-day at Mining Store, how your employees are going about their days. Yeah. So we've given all of our employees access to ChatGBT. You know, we utilize it to diagnose minor problems now. They, you know, go to our initial sure. confluence. They put the error codes in. The error code be like, hey, I see you're on S19 uh, XP machine. You know, uh, here's what we suggest doing. Um, based on this Bitmain article, so it, like really fast searching, we're using you know AI for for them to um, plan tasks. For example, like deployment tasks. Like okay, we need to do this is our goal. Let's go ahead and do subtasks with like Auto GBT and and uh, Chat in the God GBT thing, where it just like makes all the subtasks and you use that as a, a foundational building block to then go in and say okay, what did it miss? What else do we need to do? Um, we're using AI when it comes to video editing and and some of the video production that we're doing on my with social media and having that be uh, edited and, and made by AIs, which are then ranking each clip based on how well it performed and then putting that clip out to the editors more. So love AI, you know, big comp sci background. So this is something that I'm focused on and building into and think is the future of workflow and making, you know, workers who are passionate about an industry 10 times more effective. Oh, 100%. I heard the best quote. It was like, AI isn't going to replace people. Humans using AI is going to replace people. And it's just so true. I mean, for this podcast, I found a service called dummy.com. Uh, and it basically just takes like you upload, you just give it a YouTube URL, and it'll take your video and go ahead and make shorts for you. And I mean, that's just one example. But like, the tools that are going to come from this, and, and then the way it's going to interact with Bitcoin, because like, you know, we were talking about a demand response on the grid. Well, what about if you just want a little bit of compute, like you just want to do a certain thing? Well, what you think it's going to use the U.S. dollar? You think people are going to be like scanning credit cards, doing microtransactions for a fra- fraction of a penny if you just want to, you know, call an API? Like, of course it's going to be Bitcoin. So I, I think uh, on the one hand, it'll, it'll exponentially make at least the humans who use it more productive. But then it'll also make Bitcoins like the network effects and it'll just make it so much more versatile and the things you'll be able to do with it. Because when you can stream money to someone, I mean, we've never had that in our legacy financial system. How many intermediaries are involved? Like, yeah, it's a nice front end when, you know, I do the Apple Pay and I scan something, but Apple's involved, Visa's involved, whatever bank I'm using is involved. I mean, there's like God knows how many, you know, third parties taking some small cut and you just completely eliminate that and uh, you can just stream Satoshi's now. It's really incredible. It's the future of value transfer at the speed of information, right? That's the that's the premise here, and we're building on the stack. I think India does a great job of that. They're showing like this India stack of like identity and um, serve these payment services on top of what is currently existing, and saying we can build a nationalized system on top of these amazing rails and let everyone in the nation build on these rails, make it open source too. Like that's the future of society. That's the future of finance. A hundred percent. I mean, you just cut out as many middlemen as possible. And I'm not sure how much you've been using Noster, but like the value for value things that enable, or there's apps like Fountain. Um, and I, I like, I, you know, they say like everything always falls to the marginal cost of production because entrepreneurs like yourself are trying to attack that problem and, you know, squeeze out those margins until there's nothing left to squeeze. But in a Bitcoin world, it almost it becomes cheaper than that because like, for example, I love Spotify. It's a great app. I listen to a ton of podcasts and I'm always using Spotify, but I find myself using fountain more and more because fountain actually streams me sats as I listen to the podcast. So you think for all these apps out here, all these apps that you're essentially the product because it's free, you know, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, like they're all like, don't get me wrong. There's, there's a lot of value and awesome stuff you can learn on those platforms. But at the same time, those platforms are making a lot of revenue by showing you ads and getting paid from advertisers. And I think the value for value models that will be enabled when you can just stream someone value. And I'm not like, I don't think it's bad for a podcaster to take a sponsorship, but like, let's take FTX, for example, how many people had egg on their face because FTX blew up and they were trying to shill FTX not knowing, I mean, they had Tom Brady freaking out. Like most people, unless you, like unless you really dug in or had been in the space for a while, had no idea what was coming. So I think the ability to make it so content creators, people trying to provide value, have the optionality to say, all right, I actually can make a living being paid and supported by my audience rather than having to go out and get a sponsor because I got to pay the bills. And it's a beautiful thing that gets me really excited to cut out a lot of these middlemen. It lowers the barrier of entry, and that's what I hope that you know we're building to as society is getting paid to consume, getting paid to produce, and we'll see if it happens. People are going to make apps for it, so I'm super excited to explore. Nostra is a great example. 
this fountain thing seems really cool. I need to check it out. Highly recommend. Have you have you been using Nasty yourself? A little bit. Um, I don't use it as much as I use Twitter, but um, a little bit. Yeah, I still find myself probably using the Bird app a little more, but I do try and find myself uh, spending more and more time on NOS or just to zap people. It's like not having algorithms is both amazing and crappy, if that makes sense. Like on the one hand, you don't get fed those like posts that just make you go like, like, you know, like really upset you. Um, But then on the other hand, too, sometimes it's like (laughs) – it's it's annoying when you know you you run out of stuff to scroll or whatever, and Twitter just constantly keeps showing you because they want to keep you addicted, they want to keep you scrolling. And on Nostra, you don't have that, so if you scroll through all, it's like you can either follow more people or, but I mean that's it. That's all. That's all that's been posted today. So, and it's it's kind of a catch twenty two that you know it's got benefits and it's got drawbacks. Not having an algorithm to show you content. And that's why I think all the these apps in the future, you want to be able to choose the AI algorithm you're going to have. You know, are you an, do you want an algorithm for education? Do you want an algorithm for someone who's you know in middle school? Do you want an algorithm for someone who's looking to get their master's degree? You know, what type of feedback mechanism are you creating in your life, and what how are you getting your information? I think you know Elon's talked about this a few times with other people. Like, what is the algorithm doing to my life, and how do I get more control over that algorithm and what it's suggesting to me? Yeah, absolutely. And because and, you brought up Elon, it's been good to see the, uh, you know, I know uh, some people hate him, some people love him, but I, I mean, I'll commend the guy. Like after he took over Twitter, they're not doing the censorship. I mean, the whole, I don't know if you saw what happened with uh, Peter Hotez and RFK Jr. But, like how incredible to see basically last I checked, it was like 600K for people, you know, saying, Peter Hotez, go debate RFK Jr. And uh, it's sad to see, you know, Peter Hotez, like not, deb- it's like science is never settled. Science is constantly Form a hypothesis, test it, get the conclusion, you know, read the conclusion, form another hypothesis. Te- it's a never-ending thing. Um, so it, it's insane to see Peter Hotes try and come up with excuses why he can't debate the quote-unquote science. Um, but it, it's very good to see Elon kind of open those gates. And, I mean, freedom of speech is what, you know, it's the First Amendment of our Constitution in the United States. Um, so I, I'm curious what you think Twitter will be like in the future and I, I mean, obviously, I'm Bitcoiner biased, but I'm very hopeful Twitter will become some sort of Nostr client so I can take my private key and port it into Twitter. And like, I would love the capabilities of Twitter, but then also to have the Nostr ability where I can zap people and you know, I can do all the things that also make Nostr so special. I mean, I would too. I just don't know how real, you know, what's the reality of that with the IP and the value of what they pay for but and what a network means. But I think we are, you know, Facebook is pushing it. Facebook's trying to disrupt itself, I think, with a similar Nostra competitor of blockchain-based protocol for social media. And so it's like we are going to see that space still change because Elon is kind of coming in and saying, hey, let's change the, uh, the basic expectations we have of how social media works. And then that's allowing Facebook as well to say, let's disrupt ourselves. And you know, those are big players allocating a lot of time and energy and capital towards these problems. And at the end of the day, I hope it ends up in the hands of the people. Like you mentioned, with the private keys being managed by ourselves for our own uh, Twitter decentralized network, whatever you want to call that type of social media. And same thing when it comes to vertical video. We should have our own vertical video app and be able to watch decentralized vertical video that isn't, uh, you know, that's fed by an AI that we can kind of choose what type of AI we want and that isn't, um, you know, isn't controlled by one censored, one, one government or one, one area. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that does kind of make me think Twitter maybe might pivot that way is because I've seen they, they've opened it up so like people can subscribe to other people and basically trying to allow someone to monetize their audience, which I think is a great thing. I just don't think Elon is uh, completely sold on the whole Bitcoin thing. Obviously, he's a Dogecoin guy. Um, but it is interesting to see. And yeah, like these big companies, you know, they're trying like Facebook with all of their AI initiatives and Llama and whatnot. It is good to see. I think Google kind of had their bell rung a little bit. Like I've heard kids are using TikTok now for search, you know, rather than going to Google and typing something and they're like, screw that. I want to watch a quick video. That's super fast. And uh, I, I think it's a different paradigm. I think there's a lot of trade-offs to consider because on Nostra, it's beautiful. I can scroll on my iPhone on Domus, which is a client. Then I can come to my desktop and I can go on primal.net, which is another client or Yosup app or snort social or any of the other clients out there. And I can take my private key. So when I'm talking to someone who's not technical, it's like, hey, imagine you could take your Gmail login, right? And you could go to Twitter and Facebook and any other app or client that you use on your phone. You could take that Gmail login and log in. Like, how cool would that be? And, you know, then it kind of clicks like, oh, yeah, it is pretty cool, the whole public private key pair. But then you also got to explain, it's like, hey, if that private key gets hacked, someone else gets it. Well, 
you have no recourse. It's just a protocol. There's no central person who you can say, hey, I got hacked. Please, you know, st you know, this person's sitting scams to my grandma trying to scam her over money. Like, there, there's nothing you can do on these new protocols. So I, I think it's a lot of trade-offs people have to consider. But I, I, I'm with you. It's good to see a lot of these massive companies being like, yeah, we got to get our shit together because open source is, I mean, what was that, like that Google slide? They said open source is eating our lunch. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous when it comes to open source and how fast it's moving. And that's the nice thing about it is like owning your own data is going to become more and more of the future. We saw like GBDR with European regulation and now, you know, in the United States and California, everyone's like, we understand the value of data now. Before we were like, give it away, give it away, give it away. Now it's like, why don't I have my own health data all in a, you know, in a database that's secure? Why don't I have my own mail server running for me like one of my friends working on forwardemail.net it's an open source email server where you connect your google drive to it and then you can send out your own smtp and like you have your own mail server so it's like now it's just all about front ends and that's the reality of what we're getting to with ai is like all this foundational technology ai is going to help really build open source it build these protocol level things out that you know protocol developers are some of the hardest developers to go find because it's so minute and people aren't thinking about it and then you have all these great developers build uis on top of that and it's all about building on top of a protocol that has lasting effect and once that's done it's a no, it's a matter of time before you know nostra is going to continue growing at a steady rate and then once there's a culture shift it'll change its rate of growth to you know something much faster which will be exciting yes. Yeah, you made such a good point about the front ends. And uh, I recently just finished up a coding boot camp. And as you know, I basically learned HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And one of the things I kept thinking is like, the fact that I can write this JavaScript and you know, it, I'm so removed from the zero and one that's switching off in the computer. Like there's so many languages that came before it. And obviously JavaScript's what runs in the browser. It's what most front ends uh, leverage. Um, but it, you know, realizing like a lot of times if I had a question, I'd just pop up in the API, you know, chat, chat GPT, open AI's tool. And uh, nowadays, almost anyone can be a software engineer without knowing how to code because you can say, hey, I want a website with XYZ specification. And as long as you just become good enough at prompting and, you know, learn how to use like VS Code or some code editor, you, you can kind of, I mean, there's, it, it, software engineers are not going anywhere. What I'm getting at is like, I, I think the next iteration is just going to be you talking to an AI like, hey, AI you know, why don't you go and build me a Shopify website? I want you know, X, Y, and Z in specification. I want you to put these links here. And it'll become like, coding, I think, will become more of like a pseudo coding thing. So like, you're still gonna need the protocol developers, but most front-end developers will never actually write JavaScript or HTML or CSS anymore. They'll just say, hey, uh, ChatGPT, draft me it. ChatGPT will then go ahead and write all of that HTML, CSS, and JavaScript code and just make the front-end look beautiful. But when that happens, it just, I mean, look at Uber, like, Say what you want about the company, whatever. It's so much more convenient to call an Uber to my front door, and to, you know, if I got to go to the airport or whatever, then try and get a taxi. And you know, it's it's made everyone's life better in a lot of ways. <laughs> Maybe made people lazier, but like the innovation is going to happen one way or another. And uh, I can't wait to see what what comes of these things. It's it's going to be when we can manifest and create from just like you said, the touch of a button. It makes engineers who understand how to be very clear with what they're asking for because they know the right questions makes them a hundred times more effective and we're not going back. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I do think it's legit. Like a lot of people are like, Oh, I'm scared of losing my job. But you also have to understand, well, new jobs will take that place. It's like, yeah, maybe, you know, people won't be looking for react developers, but I bet you they'll be looking for prompt engineers who can, you know, spin up a beautiful react website. So, uh, you know, you just, I think humans are a bit resistant to change sometimes and you just got to keep up with the times because some jobs are going to be made obsolete, but there'll be a ton of new jobs that take their place. And it's hard to want to disrupt what you're doing. You know, most people don't go into work and say, how do I make this uh, 10 times easier for everyone to do? It's no, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's about, I want to keep my job. I'm comfortable. I got my kids soccer game on Wednesday and I'm living my life. I'm making a good salary, you know, traveling. And that's the reality of most individuals. And that's why Elon's such a, a different person. Cause he's just like, let's go challenge these, these core assumptions, these fundamental principles of these industries, you know, cars, rockets, social media, API usage being charged for, and then, you know, changing how people do it. And that's, that's why he's who he is. Yeah. And to that point, I mean, look at all the outrage we've seen this year. Companies like Twitter said, we're going to start charging for the API, Reddit, a lot of these companies, there's been a lot of outrage. And I mean, I was, some of the bills you saw, like, you're like, 
holy crap, they went that much for the API. But at the same time, now when you have a money where you can just stream it based on API calls, I think it's just going to completely revolutionize, uh, you know, the, the way people transact because, I mean, it makes sense if you're providing someone your API. Yeah, at some point you're going to want to get paid for it. But at the same time, it's obviously I don't think people want to pay thousands. So I think having these uh, more flexible models where you can essentially stream sats when you want to use the API and then cut it off so you know you, you can have more control of it. It's just it's a win-win for both party. One party gets paid and the other party doesn't feel like you know they're having to pay a freaking arm and leg every time you know their monthly API bill comes up. It's the future of contracts, the future of transactions, because it takes away the whole need for that middle management sales positions and customer success roles and everyone in that stack who uh, if it's done via API and it's code and it's abstracted away, but it's only one layer, it's gonna make it a lot easier to build on top of these networks. And now it's down to who's creating who's making value, who's attracting users, core metrics that really create value versus, uh, let's say, supporting metrics that have supported those previous systems. Yeah, I, th I think a lot of people are scared of it, but uh, to anyone listening, embrace it. I mean, we're not, we're not going back. And I, th I think that same idea can apply to money. You know, I think obviously most people are just, at least in the United States, accustomed to the U.S. dollar. They don't want it to change. I mean, even, you know, it, there's a patriotic sense like, yeah, this is the U.S. dollar. This is the global reserve currency. We want to use it. And it's not that like I want to bash like, yeah, some of the politicians might irk me. But I think overall the Constitution and the ethos of this country is beautiful. And uh, I just see Bitcoin as an extension of that, just a way like to preserve private property for every citizen in the world that's permissionless. Anyone can get 12 or 24 words, memorize those and store their wealth in their head, take it with them anywhere. And it just, I mean, it's like the embodiment of the U.S. Constitution in cyberspace. So it's, uh, it's, it's exciting. It is amazing the future that we're about to go into because property rights are now protected by code and not by the state. We don't just solve, you don't use violence to solve our problems anymore because in a global world, it's, you know, becoming harder and harder to see that as our main way of, yeah, let's use this as control and as a way to show who's right. Exactly. We can finally have money backed by open source software and math rather than violence and debt. I mean, and, and to have a debt-based money is an oxymoron in itself because money is supposed to be the tool to pay off debt. <laughs> but that's essentially what we have ever since we went off the gold standard in 71. Then to also just not have to rely on a military to enforce those property rights. And I think that gets abstracted away because like, you know, it's like you miss a bill payment, the military doesn't show up with a gun and say, hey, you better give us that money. Like it's very abstracted away, but you know, you stop paying your property taxes for years. We'll see how long it takes for the sheriff to show up and evict you from your property. So I think it's a fine line. And uh, yeah, I, I think just like that point you made right there, it, it is so crucial that we get the world on a standard of money backed by open source software and math that anyone can verify for themselves. Because as we saw, like I think the Fed recently uh, released the, you know, the the master accounts and I don't know if you know Caitlin Long is, but her whole custodia bank and having a fully reserved bank. I love what she was doing, but then to see the Fed deny her, even though she went through all of the hoops to make sure she should get approved. And then the people that the Fed have given accounts to, it's like some of these people, at least from what I saw from Caitlin Long bring it up, some of these people didn't even meet the requirements. So you talk about hypocrisy, you talk about regulators gone wrong, and you talk about basically I mean, just it's, it's all big boy clubs. It's all big boy club. Even FTX, I saw they spent a hundred they're spending a million dollars a day on legal defenses and attorneys. That's money that's going should be going to creditors. It's just going to massive legal bills, dinners, expenses, lodging, and he, they dropped, you know, five charges. Like it's just yeah, every yeah. you just dig into it more, and you're like, oh, this is just a big boys' club. Oh, the Fed, just a big, just a big, just a big boys' club. Oh, oh, and this, oh, it's a club. It's just like there's nothing about equality here. There's nothing about you know everyone being on the same page, which is these fundamental ideas that we created the cover the government and the country on, but have gotten hidden away because of the powers that be and because of the nature and the greediness of humans in general and ego and all this other stuff. It's like, that's why we have to trust math because math doesn't lie. hundred percent. Math can't virtue signal. Like all of the things that you see, Paul, it's all just virtue signaling. They do not care about you. <laughs> there is no red, there is no blue, there is a state and there is you. And we finally have a way to opt out to bankrupt them. The U.S. will always be able to pay its bills as long as we have a debt-based system. There's no questioning that. I mean, I guess they, if they didn't raise the debt limit, but you know they're going to raise the debt limit. The Uniparty is going to raise the debt limit. The problem is the bills they pay back are going to be freshly printed and devalued in enormous amount. So it's it's beautiful that we have uh, people who can now go and opt out, you know, buy Bitcoin. If you take the time to learn about it and see, you know, the uh, 
the property rights it can give you, the, the assurance that no one can print that Bitcoin out of thin air. Only people like yourself who are actually using electricity to mine it can earn it, or you can offer good and service and get it that way, or you can part with your fiat, at least as of today. We'll see how long that uh, remains open in the coming years. Um, yeah, JP, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Where can people uh, find you online? So I'm online at John Paul Barrick on Instagram, JP Barrick on Twitter and TikTok. Uh, I'll never ask you to send me crypto, so don't send me crypto <laughs> unless you're like, you know, buying Bitcoin miners through Mining Store and it, it's miningstore.com because that's a scam. There's been a lot of scammers you know, using my name and stuff. On, uh, exactly. You got a good post. <laughs> <laughs> zap me some stats, but other than that, that's where you can find me on Nostra. I honestly don't even know how to give out my ID on that, but uh, yeah, find me at JP Barrick. I'll be on, I'm everywhere on the internet. I say thanks again for letting me on and this was this was great and I'm super excited to help people explore Bitcoin mining. So if you're interested in learning more, uh, reach out and my DMs are open. Awesome. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Thank you for coming on. I have to have you back on the show and uh, I'll have all those links in the show notes too for anyone listening. Perfect. Perfect.